0: Welcome to the next episode of Grid Forward Chats, a podcast series with industry leaders on what lies ahead for our electric grid. I'm Bryce Yonker, Executive Director of Grid Forward and host of our podcast series. And today we have with us Deborah Smith. Deborah is General Manager at Seattle City Light. Deborah, thanks for being on.
1: Thanks for having me, Bryce.
0: It's great to discuss um, current issues with you today. So much going on. Today's Monday, May 18th. And many of us across the country, including Portland and there in Seattle, are in some kind of a stay at home recommendation and certainly some major partial or or really rather complete economic shutdowns. Uh, Before we dive into our conversation today, how how are you doing? How are things for you?
1: Uh, We're doing great. It's funny. I think working from home and I, I have been working from home. I have not been in the office for probably seven weeks. Uh, I am planning to head in, start having uh, twice-weekly office hours starting uh, this week, and I'm actually looking forward to that. I'm lucky I have a big enough office that social distancing isn't an issue. Um, But I think, you know, in general, what I would say is, uh, the city of Seattle and, and my group, Seattle City Light, we've done an amazing job. My employees have done an amazing job making this switch. And some of the things that we've been able to get accomplished in this short period of time are things we couldn't imagine doing <laughs> in our normal lives. And and so it's it's pretty inspirational, to be honest with you. So um, I think it is, sometimes I feel sad, you know, yesterday, or I think it was actually Saturday I um I was kind of having a down day and I just feel sad at what all has happened and the uncertainty and how things have changed but then when I think about the response that the city of Seattle the state of Washington really the whole west has taken I'm incredibly proud um to be part of it.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, um, Deborah, our paths crossed a few years back when you were running Central Lincoln on the Oregon coast, and uh, here you are you know, heading up Seattle. Can you tell us just a bit, uh, an abbreviated version of your background that led you into the role here at the helm of, of Seattle?
1: Yeah, for sure. My uh, my youngest child uh, child, my youngest adult is twenty six, and I went to work at EWEB, the Eugene Water and Electric Board, uh, when he was two. Uh, he had just <laughs> turned two. And so that it always helps me. I can always remember how long I've been in this industry. That was a second career for me. I'm almost uh, 60. So uh, I joined uh, eWeb as an accountant, worked my way there uh, for 17 years. And when I left, I was the assistant general manager behind Roger Gray, who was the general manager who now runs PNUC. Uh, and uh, And that was great. And Roger and I had a great relationship, but I really realized that I wanted an opportunity to lead at the highest level. And when Central Lincoln's general manager position came up, I applied and and was kind of surprised and and happy to find that when I was offered the position, I said yes (laughs) and was honored to join a utility that was in really great shape, small rural utility, but had made some great investments in technology. And was really committed to moving into the 21st century in a big way. And they continue to do so. And that's how I met you, Bryce, was because when I joined Central Lincoln, they had completed their AMI implementation and we were just rolling over and starting to look at how we could create value for our customer owners who paid for the system and and make sure that the investment was meeting their needs. And so that was a really exciting time to be able to help with that. Um, But Seattle City Light is also a really really well-run utility with um, who's done a lot of really cool stuff, and the the politics of it, the focus on environmental stewardship, the uh, commitment to energy efficiency—those were all things that were also true at EWEB. And so, while Central Lincoln, as a small rural utility, was very different in many ways, coming back to Seattle was like going home but at a much bigger, in a much bigger house. How's that? <laughs> and so uh, I'm still figuring out how to keep all the rooms clean, but I'm doing my best. And yeah. I've been here for uh, a little over a year and a half. I started in October of 18, uh, and, um, and it's been great.
0: Yeah. And, and as far as Seattle, it's one of the larger public power organizations across the country um, can you just talk a little bit before we start getting into the issues as far as you know what that means, being a public power organization and being a part of the municipality? How, how does that guide the work that you guys do uh, with and for the community there?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, question. Great question, uh, Bryce. So we have about 470,000 meters. Uh, that's, and we serve, oh, somewhere uh, over 900,000 people. And then we also, of course, have a, a lot of Uh, commercial and industrial business accounts. Uh, Honestly, I worry about that because I worry about Seattle and and the recovery. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, We are, eWeb was a municipal utility, but it had its own elected board. Seattle City Light reports into the city council. So that's new for me. It is a much more closely aligned relationship. Uh, City Light is a, a city department. Uh, So, one of the things when I first came was to say, hey, we will be more successful and we will all enjoy our work more if we can increase our alignment with the city of Seattle. So we made being a good city partner one of our priorities, and we've really been focusing on that. We've been collaborative. We've been looking for opportunities that we can help and participate. I probably spend uh, 20% of my time, and certainly more during COVID, and we can talk about that, but I probably spend 20% of my time on city business. So having nothing to do with running the utility, just having to do with running a large city department. We are the largest department in terms of budget, and we are the second largest behind police in terms of employee count. So we have the opportunity to really uh, collaborate, but to really contribute because we have a lot of really, really good people. Um, and the opportunities across the city, if I'm a developer or even a residential customer and I'm trying to do a piece of work on my, on my property uh, or on my building. You know, I don't think about, well, there's Seattle City Light and there's the Seattle Department of Transportation and then there's the Seattle Department of Construction Inspections. I think the city of Seattle. And so our goal and, and, and it, it, our goal at City Light has been to, to, to be easier to work with. And then simultaneously, I joined the city at the same time that the mayor was basically rebuilding her cabinet. And so there are a number of new city department heads like myself who started all within a short time of each other. And we've really come together and we collaborate very well. And so I think we are making a difference and we are all trying to change the value proposition for government services.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So down into some of the topics, and and I know we don't have a ton of time, but as far as the modernization efforts there, can you talk about what's in flight uh, and in particular, maybe how it's being impacted by the current dynamics out there? Are are some of the modernization efforts and projects you guys have still going ahead or some of them being impacted
1: Um, Great question. So we were in the process of doing a strategic plan. Every two years, City Light updates their strategic plan, and it's a six-year plan. And the first two years uh, include a rate uh, path. And certainly electrification, grid enhancement, or grid modernization were primary focuses of that strategic plan. And we think a lot about the city thinks a lot about electrification. We have serious transportation issues where electrification and and uh, carbon free public transportation become huge opportunities and so a lot of work has been done. Um, Around you know what does that look like and what are our limits, and where do we have issues in terms of our ability to meet that new load? We've been working with Rocky Mountain Institute. We've done a lot of great work. And then came pandemic. And um, so we put our strategic plan, we completed it. In fact, the the strategic the final draft of that strategic plan came to us on Friday. Uh, hmm. And we will we will fi- finalize it, but we will not transmit it. Because the strategic plan, I fear, would would be tone deaf to some of what Seattle is experiencing right now. And certainly the rate trajectory for 2021 um, isn't something our customers can afford. So we have said, hey, we're going to complete this report, put it on the shelf. Um, it will inform our work going forward. It certainly informs our reopening and recovery work that we're engaging now. But we will we will back off while we understand the financial impacts of COVID on the city, on the utility, and, and on our economy in general. So that's where we landed. But we also know, and let's go back to Central Lincoln for a second, Bryce. One of the reasons Central Lincoln, long before me, was able to uh, get such a great uh, AMI. It was a, it was a, a full implementation, so soup to, soup to nuts implementation of AMI. And one of the reasons we were able to do that was because the, the utility, the PUD, had been planning to put in a wire lines uh, AMI system. And then when the recession hit, um, the, the director of engineering at the time, Bruce Loveland, said, you know, we have this fully baked plan Why don't we submit it and see if we can't get stimulus dollars and we could then afford to do a mesh system that has, you know, is far more robust, more resilient and will allow us to do a whole lot more. And because the plans were ready to go, uh, Central Lincoln was fortunate to get ODO funding or excuse me, Department of Energy funding that made all of that possible. So the idea where we are now is we want to do the same thing with grid modernization and electrification. So Emeka Anyanmu, who I know you know, and he is on the board, I think, for for Grid Forward. He's in charge of a project that we are using Tiger Teams. We are using agile project management. And we took some of our really smartest, brightest um, folks Mm -hmm. who really have a vision, and we pulled them together. And they completed week one last week Mm -hmm. of this new project. So they have six weeks. Um, and there are, I want to say, maybe 21 discrete pieces of work, which together comprise our grid enhancement portfolio. They are going to get these projects scoped um, and and ready so that they could be presented um, when and if infrastructure dollars become available through the federal government. So um, it's it's a super cool way of managing projects. You have weekly sprints. You have weekly debriefs with an advisory committee. It's very high energy. They do all their work in teams. They have different streams. They move in and out of rooms. They're um, they're super good at technology, uh, hence part of the the use of the word agile. And um, and they're really excited to do it. So um, I think it's it's a in some ways I think we will have a product that we can envision and think about funding far sooner than we would have had if we had tried to do this in our traditional way. So we're one, we're one moving forward quickly. And we're two, using different tools that I think will serve us for many, many, many years to come.
0: Yeah, you you answered probably three of my questions in your update. So I'm going to loop back around. Uh, Let's start on electrification. You know, so Seattle, like many of the you know, larger municipalities of the West is kind of seeing that initial wave of electrified vehicles. How do you think that the implications of dealing with the economic fallout of all this, the societal fallout of, of, of dealing with this health crisis, both impact your customers on their adoption of these solutions, as well as what does it do to impact uh, you know, the utility and and the role that you guys are playing there to to integrate and optimize the you know the new wave of electrified transportation.
1: I could take that question in a couple different parts. So one, when we talk about individual use of electric vehicles, I drive a Tesla. what do you drive, Bryce?
0: Not yet. I am <laughs> waiting for an electric vehicle. We have a hybrid, but i no, cool. I have not yet gone across. But...
1: I had a hybrid for years, and and I love yep. it. and so, but I have a um so I have a Tesla, and, And, um, and I don't drive it very much. And I will say that most people in Seattle, uh, there's, you know, Seattle is a public transportation city. Now that's probably Mm -hmm. less so in Tacoma or Snohomish, certainly, but we have such fantastic public transportation and traffic and gridlock is such an issue for us that people, most of my employees use public transportation. So, um, I suspect when it comes to individual Adoption of electric vehicles, it's hard to say because I think the tech sector who are now working from home, um, I think those are folks who would be primary adopters. And, and I don't know that these changes or the economic issues ahead will impact them. So let's assume that that sector of our population continues. I think certainly there are a lot of people who are going to be very negatively impacted. And I think Seattle is a city that's going to take uh, a good chunk of time to, to bounce back from this. Uh, And I'm not an economist, so I won't project what that looks like. But I know it's pretty scary when we talk about it as part of city government. That never amounted to a significant increase in load for us. I don't know that, that, that there will be any real impact there. Our load impacts are based on uh, adoption of electric vehicle, uh, vehicle infrastructure or electric vehicles by mass transit. So um, and in King County Metro, you know, I think you probably tracked this recently, ordered their first 40 electric buses. They've been doing a pilot. We've been working with them. We have an MOA where we ha- will be uh, project managing their uh, their new uh, base, their electric bus base in Tequila. And I don't know what will happen with them. And that's, that's a really big question. Because, you know, for us, uh, the load impacts are mass transit, port and ferries. Now, some say that the cruise ship industry in Seattle will be one of the hardest or slowest to recover. And so I don't know what uh, the port of Seattle is thinking about in terms of electrification of the docks. We're in contact with them and they're actually participating in this project with us. And we've asked our partners to to participate with us as we, as we do this tiger team approach, but I don't know what that looks like. And I don't know, you know, what their timing may be. I think uh, Metro same thing. I think that is a supply and demand situation. So as people start to get back to work, Metro will add back routes. People will be riding the bus On the one hand, if they can afford the capital investment, the increased economics from running electric buses may actually be helpful as they stand themselves back up. So that's a question, again, that that I don't know and I'm not privy to. So I guess what I would say is I don't know, (laughs) but you're asking all the same questions we are asking and we are really trying to understand the timing impacts.
0: Yeah. Tough question. Right. I mean, a lot of these are tough questions, mm-hmm. but, you know, I know a lot of people are nervous about getting back on mass transit. So they're saying that regular transit might be getting used quicker and more. more. So, it-
1: so so that that is a big issue. And then the last piece that's important is that West Seattle, which is a, an area in the Seattle area where a lot of people live and then they commute. A lot of West Seattleites commute to the city and the West Seattle bridge is down. So on the one hand, and that bridge is going to be down for a number of years. So uh, transit between West Seattle, which is kind of a peninsula, uh, travel between West Seattle and the downtown core will be very, very challenging if you're attempting to do it in a personal vehicle. So that may offset some of what you just mentioned.
0: So going back to kind of the last two months and what's unfolded there with City Light and with the community. I think most of us followed that Seattle was one of the earliest and hardest hit communities with with the virus. So how has this kind of impacted life at City Light, life in the community? You know, as you hopefully look towards, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, what's this recovery potentially going to look like? H- how have kind of the economic or the activities of the pandemic impacted everything for you guys so far?
1: Great question again. um, So, yeah, Seattle being one of the first, the Seattle area and and Washington State, you know, we can argue whether it was Snohomish, Seattle, where this started, but um, clearly Washington State, I think that we did a really good job. I think Governor Inslee, the King County executive, uh, Mayor Durkin, they all they decided early on to follow the science and to be aggressive. And I think the aggressiveness paid off. And I actually think it paid off for others as well. Like I have a home in Eugene, Oregon, and Eugene, Oregon never had many cases at all. Lane County, where I live in Eugene, had somewhere less than 100 cases ever. Um, and so I think that's partly because Washington moved quickly and the governors, the Western state governors decided to work together. So that was true for California, Oregon and Washington. And I think that our quick actions in Washington state have helped to somewhat uh, certainly at least in Oregon. I think well, we will be slower to return. I think we are still seeing new cases emerge. And I think that the mayor mm-hmm. will be um, very, very thoughtful. Um, very careful about how we open things back up. And even as we see parts of Washington state beginning that process who are now in phase one reopening, I would suspect, and I don't have any information about this. This is not something I know, but I would suspect that Seattle will be, will be a bit slow um, as we should be. The impacts for customers are just huge. And I'll just jump into one of your, one of your other questions. What are we doing? For I was customers?
0: just about to ask. So <laughs> let's talk about yeah. it.
1: So um you know, we very early on, and by the way, I want to say that we've been working collaboratively with our partners in, in the tri-county area. So, um, Seattle City Light, uh, Snohomish PD, Tacoma and, uh, and Puget Sound Energy. We've all, we've had weekly calls. We, we have really tried to provide a seamless suite of uh, services for our customers. So, if you are a a city-like customer, and, and so most of what I'm going to say is going to be true for you if you live anywhere in that area. If you're a city-like customer, we're not shutting you off. We are not charging interest charges. We're not charging late charges. We are happy to make payment arrangements of any sort with you. We have waived the need for Uh, significant down payments up front, what we really want to do is just have an opportunity to work with our customers to come up with some kind of payment plan that works for them. We recognize people are pulled in way too many directions. Um, While it's true that we also depend on on a steady cash flow, we also understand that we need to put customer needs first. So that's what we're doing. The other thing we did is we have it's uh, City Light, and I believe Tacoma has a similar program. I'm not sh- sure about others. We have a uh, what we call a utility discount program, and it provides a sizable, in our case, 60% discount on your electric rates for income-qualified customers. Um, and we, we operate that in conjunction with our sister utility, Seattle Public Utilities, who provides water, sewer, stormwater, and solid waste services. Um, And it is administered by Seattle's Human Services Division. So um, it's a big part of the safety net for lower income customers. We were in the midst of a pilot where customers could self-certify online. And what we did was we expanded that pilot, got the fillable form up online, and we've made it as easy as possible for customers who believe that they are qualified to complete the process, self-certify, and, and join the program. So that's one of the primary things we've done, and we'll be curious to see how many of those come up customers stay on the program. It'll probably wind up being one of the things we're able to use to track recovery because as customers' incomes move back up, they'll, they'll, they'll no longer qualify. So some of this initial bump will be helpful. So those are the primary things. I think really just also communicating with com- customers. We've not been doing anything but emergency shut work. I know one of your questions is around resiliency, I will tell you, Bryce, never have customers been less tolerant of outages. Uh, when you are working, schooling, mm-hmm. playing, stay patient yeah. from home, you know, the notion of your power being out. Um, uh, for anything but the most uh, emergent need is just not tolerable. So uh, we've we've been abiding by that. We are interested in beginning to move forward as the governor starts to open open up construction and other work. We we will be uh, we will have to change that position, but we will continue to work with customers to make those inconveniences as, as as minimal as possible.
0: So Deborah, I know that taking care of customers has long been important to you, so it comes naturally. But in this really acute time of need or certainly a different uh, level of of, uh, support necessary from customers. Do you have a sense of the order of magnitude of the sort of your customer base that's looking for assistance or needs help right now?
1: That's a head scratcher for me, I'll be honest. So there's long been discussion since I got here. Typically, we have had uh, between 30 and 35,000 customers enrolled in the utility discount program the city of Seattle has um, based on income data uh, for our, our, our citizens. There's been a belief that probably close to 90,000 uh, customers would be eligible based on income qualification. And yet we've really never been able to get above 35,000. And we've done, uh, we've been exploring different options around joint certification with things like snap or food snap stamps or other things like that. Well, you know, now never has there been greater need. And we know that the need has really been the the numbers of people in, in, in Seattle is probably close to 25% unemployment right now. Yeah. Um, when you include people who are not looking for work. um. And yet we've only had, you know, less than 10,000 people apply for this self-certification UDP. So I don't know what that means. It's something that I think about. Um, we've tried to make it as easy as possible um, you don 't have to talk to a person. you can fill out a form at night. I know a lot of folks who lose jobs, especially for the first time because i 've been through this before um, you know it 's really scary and it 's not accessing the the safety net that exists for po- for folks it 's not something that they 're comfortable doing they don 't know how to mm-hmm. do it um, and so our thought was if we made this super super easy, people would you know even if they weren't comfortable asking for other types of assistance, they would ask for this. And again, it's been a relatively low number of people who have done so.
0: I know you guys are rolling out your AMI now. Do you have very good data on usage for your customers right now as far as is it up? I've seen a lot of studies showing that since we're home more that that customers are using more energy on average.
1: Yeah, that that is true. And we are mindful of the fact that that can create affordability issues for folks who are already struggling. And so we're trying to think about that. But at the same time, um, uh, we don't have great data because we are right now, unfortunately, in the process of of doing a number of, of, of cool initiatives. In fact, uh, you know, it, here at the end of this week, over, over Memorial Day weekend, we will we will our customer portal will go live and that will oh, be a cool tool for customers. Um, and, and by the way. You know all this stuff happening remotely. I mean, I I want to. I, I got to tell you, Bryce. You know, we went live with the EIM remotely. So, oh wow, we have figured out how to do a lot of things that we would have said there was no way. Um, we've done them successfully remotely. So, on your
0: CNI customers again, mm-hmm. we're we're in a really unique spot around what the economic fallout of this is all going to be. What are you guys hearing, seeing, noticing from classes of your CNI customer base or from your your uh, industrial and, and um, commercial customers overall that gives you any inclination as to how the recovery might be taking shape or how they're doing right now?
1: Sure. Well, let me go back to your prior question. So in sure.
0: terms
1: in terms of load loss, we are seeing an overall load loss right now between 7 10% uh, weather adjusted. So that's fairly significant for us. And the part that we are working on, which I think was what you were getting at, was how has, what what kind of shift have we seen between commercial accounts and uh, residential as people have taken to working more from home? And and that's an interesting one. And we're, we're again, we're trying to understand that. We, you know, there's certainly, you know, it's not, Residential per KWH rates are higher, but as we know, uh, general service commercial industrial customers pay load and so or pay demand. and so we're, we're we're losing demand revenue even as we shift load to residential customers. So it's not clear what the total revenue impacts of all of that will be. From a commercial and industrial perspective, I can say some of our largest industrial customers have cut back fairly dramatically right now. We're not sure that those are long term. They may be supply chain. So our key accounts team is staying in touch with them, making, reaching out regularly, talking with folks, wanting to understand what are the drivers for um, reduced schedules or, or you know, furloughs. Um, and, and so we're just, we're just learning about that. Anecdotally, I live downtown uh, in at second and Pike in Seattle, and the majority of stores are boarded up. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, Oh, this morning I read in the paper that Specialties Cafe has closed permanently. Specialties mm. Cafe, there's a whole bunch of them all over, you know, Washington, and they're kind of a mainstay. And so, you know, it right now we're just hearing, uh, probably we're just beginning to hear about uh, local businesses downtown who have made the decision to shut permanently. It's hard to know yet which ones are permanent shutdowns and which stores are just boarded up uh, for preservation of assets.
0: Yeah. So you talked about resiliency. Maybe we can loop back on it. You know, a t- couple of years ago, that was code word for, you know, sub- Cascadia Subduction Earthquake Zone, as you were very familiar with in in, in uh, on the coast in Oregon. You know, last year over the last eighteen months, it's been you know in the West code for, you know, fire management or fire risk. It's always you know it always has had you know sub sub subtones of cyber cyber attacks or cyber readiness. You know, now we have global pandemics in the mix. There, what does running a resilient energy system? How does that take a new meaning now? And 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 where do you think that carries forward in in the lessons for the the utility there. Oh,
1: I think it's exciting to be honest with you. I mean, it's hard to be excited about anything related. But as I said earlier, um, we are all not just in this industry, not just in city government, but we are all learning how to do things in different ways, and we are learning to do things. Uh, more quickly than we ever imagined. So when I think about resiliency, I do think, you know, sometimes again, we talked a lot about how do you get people back to work? And when we were talking about resiliency at the Oregon coast, that largely had to do with how do you get people back to the office? Well, I think we have learned that people don't need to come to the office. Mm -hmm. People don't need to go to a service station to roll, to do recovery work. Uh, People can, uh, People, we have been flexible in terms of sending people home with vehicles. The kinds of things we thought about back in, uh, back in Newport, uh, with respect to bridges and tsunamis, we now think about in terms here, in terms of how do we get people safely to work sites where they're not, uh, in too close a proximity to each other, and we wind up unable to respond to that unexpected windstorm because we have folks who are sick, tired, or unable to perform. So I think we have learned that we can stand ourselves up, we can use tools, we can use technology, and we could get back to work much more quickly than we ever anticipated. And that's even been true of our ops folks and our field folks who traditionally they've always had there's always been this reputational thing that says, oh, these these folks don't use computers. Well, that's not true. Um, And, you know, they've been teleworking from home, doing training, doing um, getting their skills up to speed. So um, I think we really have figured out how to quickly change staffing plans, uh, uh, quickly change work priorities. Do things faster. Uh, I think that we've learned a lot. So I think that resiliency in that traditional, uh, you know, uh, natural disaster kind of view of the world, and I would even include a cyber uh, break as being a, a, a natural disaster because it's not something that we would have created here. I think we have we have grown a lot through this, and I think if we can take the lessons learned. And then incorporate them into our resiliency plans and our recovery plans, um, we will have taken huge steps forward during this time.
0: So recovery from this is going to take some time. Yeah, you know, they, I think we're still somewhat on the front end of the economic fallout of, of of it all. However, electric grid operators and the infrastructure that they have invested in over the last den you know decades and st- century plus has often proven to be, you know, an efficient and effective use of capital. So I know you're well aware of the considerations federally, but uh, maybe thinking about federal or re- or regional, what, what would be some of your recommendations as to you know where those can get directed and how those can be effectively leveraged in, and used?
1: Well, I think if I'm the federal government, I have to look at, um, Impacts on cities. I have to look on at jobs. I have to look at uh, benefits for rural communities, um, and I think that an infrastructure package that I know it's I know that the federal government is having a hard time thinking about it right now, and I don't blame them. Um, when you have as many people who are struggling for basic uh, needs, you know, basic needs, that's where you have to focus. But I'm I'm a believer that there will be a need to create new jobs and to use everything that we've learned through this time uh, to better position ourselves for the future. So I think the federal government focusing on grid modernization, grid enhancement, uh, public-private partnerships, which I think could be really important, and I think it's an advantage that we have in Seattle because we live in tech land. Um, I think think those will all, I, I think that there may actually be an increased appetite I think if the federal government is willing to step up, and if they're able to find funding to help support some of those types of activities across uh, across this country, that I think we could wind up being again a deployment could happen faster, at least on the on the infrastructure side of things. You know that most people, when you talk about the cool new stuff, they want to talk about the software that runs on the grid, and we've spent a lot of time, even in Seattle, saying, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute!" Electrification is awesome and it's what we all want, but it only works if we have uh, an efficient uh, modern grid to run everything on. And that's not as sexy to talk about, you know, infrastructure projects, but that is where there's a lot of jobs. And so I think for Seattle that has a really uh, large construction sector uh, and we certainly expect construction to slow uh, there's discussion right now about whether the convention center will be able to continue with their big expansion. Well, that's, I think, a thousand plus employees who are engaged in the construction industry. Is there a way that the federal government can keep projects or people anyway? They can't keep the project going. Can they keep the people employed by deploying resources in different ways? So that's what I see as a huge opportunity. And I want us, the city of Seattle, to be ready in every way to seize it whenever it comes along.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, maybe a final question here, and and it's a it's such an interesting one in these times. So it's two sides of the same coin, you know. When you look out there at what's all going on, you know, what's something that has you worried, keeps you up at night, that you're really kind of concerned about still. And as you look to the dynamics unfolding out there, is there an opportunity you're especially excited about? What really? what's really interesting for you. So kind of the good and the bad or the bad and the good, whichever order you want to take it in um, to wrap up our question, our conversation here.
1: I think it's always good to end on the good note versus the bad note. So I sure. really, really what's yeah. you? <laughs> I'm really worried about the financial impacts, the long-term financial impacts on uh, I'm worried obviously on Seattle, but I'm worried about it for, for everyone. Um, I'm obviously worried about a resurgence of the virus um, I don't we didn't really talk about this, but I've been engaged and in, 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 in had the privilege to help lead some of the uh, operational planning work. so that's everything from uh, opera, the departments in the city, their their continuity of operation plans. and now I'm leading and, and city lights supporting the citywide reopening and recovery, the reopening part of recovery planning. So how do we get the city departments back up? And one of the things that we're really doing there, and this is, this feeds into uh, what I'm excited about, is we're saying let's not just stand it back up the way it was. And if we don't, if we don't really force ourselves into the discipline of saying this is a moment what do we want the moment to look like? I don't want to sound like uh, Barack Obama in his amazing speech this this last Saturday, but there is an element of that. This is a moment that we can we can pivot from and we can decide to be different. Um, or we can easily stand everything back up the way it was. And that's everything from things we've already talked about, like technology or grid infrastructure or, um, you know, whatever it is. But it's also about who we are as people. And so in the city of Seattle, where we've got a long history of systemic racism and um, and, and an economic divide that people just cannot uh, get past, um, and and homelessness and folks who are not being taken care of, Can we stand city operations back up in a way that provides a better future for those more vulnerable populations and for those people that, that have um, historically uh, gotten less um, uh, from society, from government, from um, just from culture? Uh, What can we do to stand Seattle up so that we are a better city and, um, and, and that, Even as we struggle with those economics, so link those two together, even as we struggle with the economic uh, recovery, which will be hard and long, that we're doing it in a way that leaves fewer people behind. And I think that's exciting. And I think if we can do that uh, in many places in our country, that will be perhaps the best thing that comes out of this.
0: Deborah, thanks for being on with us. Always great to chat. Good to hear your insights. Great. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for listening to today's session of Grid Forward Chats, our podcast series with industry leaders on what's driving grid modernization and innovation ahead. If you have an idea for one of our podcasts, send me an email, bryce at gridforward.org. You can also check out our website, gridforward.org, for more information about our podcasts, the virtual events we have, becoming a member, and more of our mission. Promote grid innovation and accelerate modernization across the region.